Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. On today's show, we're going to be taking a broad look at the world of education. Now, do either of the two of you have any particular expertise in this field? Um, is there anything you would like to get out front right here in the first 30 seconds of the show? I, I like that you're doing this as though it's a scandal that is about to impact the integrity of punching out. We don't immediately address it. You know, full disclosure. Yes. In in the interest, you know, they always say sunlight is the best disinfectant. And in the interest of full transparency, I should announce, disappointing at least one of our listeners, that I'm a teacher. Noah, I think this episode was in part your idea uh, to have like a broad overarching education episode discussing not just the high school level, which you're very familiar with, but also uh, some news from the world of college. And um, we've talked in the past about how colleges uh, exploit various groups of workers from athletes to grad students, to professors and adjuncts, just about everybody who works on a college campus, frankly. But I think we'll start this episode with a a few articles about recent efforts by grad students to unionize. Um, Graduate students, they do a lot of work for universities. Um, Either of the two, you want to like sort of explain what that role looks like? Yeah. So graduate students and and adjuncts and labor within university is kind of a, 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 a situation that anybody who listens to Punching Out is familiar with, one, because we've talked about it, too, because it's the same old story we hear everywhere, where the employer, the university, wants to classify workers that do the primary labor of the university, which, spoiler for ahead, it is actually teaching. They're supposed to be teaching students at these universities that that's the main work they do. Um, we'll get into that later. But... Anybody who does that teaching, which is primarily adjuncts and primarily graduate students um, and research to some to some degree, depending on your specialty, they want to classify the university wants to classify those workers as not workers. They get a stipend for the work. They are expected to meet certain minimum requirements as far as hours to be worked. Um, They are beholden to the university for their livelihood, but the university nevertheless wants to classify them as education fellowship holders in some cases, which is university BS, frankly. Yeah, that I think I think the term that universities would have come up with if it sounds like student educators might be a term they'd come up with there. Student practitioners, student teachers, something along those lines. Specifically, it's the University of Pennsylvania. Lovely place. 
real down to earth. Which has come under scrutiny in the last, just the last couple of weeks now um, from the grad students there who are looking to unionize under the NORB because the university's response was to dis- say that, you know, these workers are not eligible to be considered employees. That's it's the Dodge that we're familiar with from um, Uber and Lyft, you know, classifying their workers as independent contractors and from colleges, you know, classifying the athletes who play sports at colleges as student athletes so that they aren't entitled to the protections that employees get. And similar we see here, it's the same move with their graduate student workers. Quoting from an article from the Daily Pennsylvanian, which is the student newspaper there, um, previously, Penn argued that residential advisors and graduate student resident associates were, quote, not employees in response to their efforts to unionize, instead classifying them as student leaders with a, quote, educational relationship to Penn, given that they are not on payroll. The NORB recognized the RAs and GRAs as employees, leading to the vote in which they voted to unionize. If they're not employees, somebody please tell the IRS. That would be fun for them to know. I should say the real point of this episode is is not so much a uh, a broad swath of education, but it's actually anti-education. Because the thing about grad students is that they give up a chance at some kind of professional experience to deepen their studies in a field, right? To to look for a master's degree or a PhD and not usually a practice degree. This isn't a degree that you get while continuing to do some other job. And, you know, you do like a couple classes a week and that kind of thing, and it takes a few years. This is something where you are continuing an intense level of study in this, especially somewhere like Penn. That's one of the few universities where you might be able to teach there having gotten your degree from there, which is a very, very rare thing in the American, in the extremely stratified American landscape. Graduate students are are passing up their chance. And to be fair, I'm mostly familiar with the humanities here, but to become better scholars of their subject area they are paid rock bottom wages for the amount of work that they are doing for the university and the amount of education they are expected to continue undertaking. And they are used as exactly what that is. They are used as cheap labor treated on par with, you know, adjuncts, which is garbage. And eventually this was always going to come home to roost it took unions like the UAW and I think in some cases Communications Workers of America and I think United Electricians or whatever they're called. I think those have been the, the three main ones that have organized a lot of grad student unions, kind of realizing that this is a way to broaden the sectors that we represent and to give us footholds in industries beyond our traditional ones. The UAW, the way that their strike, their their successful strike against uh, Ford and Stellantis and GM unfolded, or or the way that that strike was approved, was partly through support of grad students that they had unionized. 
So this is kind of a feedback loop. Yeah. Specifically at Penn, it is the UAW and the um, union they've formed there has an incredible acronym of Get Up, uh, the Graduate Employees Together University of Pennsylvania, which is just fun. I remember now that in our past discussions about uh, this sort of thing, something that came up is the contrast between a lot of universities' rhetoric and posturing as sort of, you know, liberal institutions, as places that are going to accept people from all backgrounds, that are going to create people with a certain set of values, and the way they treat their workers, which is, you know, every bit as underhanded and unpleasant to deal with as, you know, Ford or the companies that we don't expect progressive values out of. And universities aren't alone in trying to have it both ways. Uh, We've talked about Starbucks rhetoric about, you know, certain progressive issues that aren't matched by how they treat their workers. We've cited Penn here in this article, but this is happening at campuses all over. Um, have an article here from Ithaca.com about Cornell graduate students voting to form a union. Uh, University of Vermont student workers pushing to uh, unionize. Northwestern is canceling bargaining sessions with its graduate workers union. You know, Northwestern. Wasn't Northwestern the one where student-athletes attempted to unionize under the Obama administration and the Obama NLRB, despite the malevolent philosopher king we had as president for eight years, ruled against them, saying they're not employees? Yes, it was uh, 2015 when the NLRB rejected the Northwestern effort at unionization among their football players. Northwestern, not a school known for its football, but uh, a school where, nevertheless, athletes were working week in, week out to put a product on the field and sell tickets for the university, the shares, the revenue of which they didn't really see. So, yeah, it's a school with a rich history of this, but I have a hunch that if you look into any university across the country with a reasonably large student body, you're going to find similar stories. Yeah. It's universities. Like it's a a really good example, Ryan, that you're pointing out that they're venerated largely because they're thought of as either liberal institutions or, where because they they have an eye on you know racism and sexism they couldn't ever do anything exploitative in their workplaces which we know because we do this show is not a true statement and universities moreover have a, a very paternalistic way of treating everything around them in part because like let's be honest the the large majority of the student body are still largely children or very they are adults only legally um their brains are not done cooking no is the teen correspondent i am the like complete opposite here i i don't even know what that means point is 
teens are, are a, a mystery to me. But it doesn't excuse the fact that like universities want to treat the people that work for them very poorly because they are very full of themselves and they think that they will know best in in how the world works and they're the worldly ones while the students and and people within the university system just don't have any idea how the real world works which is kind of the point of the university is to help show them the wider world in general and not just a theoretical one so they should be applauding these unions frankly it's very interesting first of all sorry I'm very offended by the idea that you have to be a fan of the population that you cover to be their correspondent. I never said I'm a big fan of teenagers or anything. (laughs) That's number one. Number two, it's interesting you say that universities are meant to show you how the real world works because I think part of the reason, not to spoil anything, but we are eventually going to get into college sports and student athletes. And part of the reason that I think student athletes or people have an easier time sort of talking about, well, student athletes should get paid and and all this and so on is because I think most people in this country on some level agree with the right-wing critique that grad students are these, you know, like ivory tower intellectuals who all want to like, dye their hair weird colors and study underwater basket weaving and whatever other boomer ass memes people are still peddling when they're way too young to peddle boomer memes and i think when you see graduate students unionizing it's actually kind of interesting that they're the ones saying well no actually we we're we're refusing to accept that are gift that we are being given the life of the mind as scholars. We are going to engage with the world as it exists, which means we need money to buy food, to have, you know, some kind of healthcare, to have some kind of housing. We we need things that allow us to live as human beings. And it's the universities going, but don't you understand? You have a special relationship with us. It's educational. It's not economic. Yeah, it's that sort of rhetoric that comes up a lot in this article about University of Vermont graduate student workers in Yahoo. Actually, I should say it's the Burlington Free Press, which is being republished by Yahoo. Before I get into it, I I do think if it's the case that like there's more support for athletes unionizing. In my mind, it's almost definitely because they're on the TV. You know, it's like graduate student workers are just not something that most Americans encounter in their daily lives to the extent that they encounter college sports. And so we've talked about athletes being public figures in the labor world as it is. And so I think that might be part of the explanation there. But at any rate, there's some pretty stark quotes in this um, Burlington Free Press article. Pulling from the article, 
Quote, no graduate student gets paid near the livable wage needed to survive in Chittenden County, said Mark Feinstein, a student organizer with the union campaign UVM Graduate Students United. Quote, I would find it to be deeply concerning and hard to believe if the largest employer in the state cannot afford to pay their workers a livable wage. And in response, the university uh, says that UVM views the faculty-graduate student relationship as primarily and predominantly an educational relationship, the administration wrote. The unique relationship of graduate students with their faculty and departments is thus not well-suited to representation by a union. We're all a family here. I will also bet that the number of actual faculty hands, which I am defining here as the number of people teaching a full-time teaching slash research load that touched that letter is one, maybe. But again, it's striking just how clearly this uh, echoes the language we hear from Huffington Post or Starbucks or any company that hasn't had a notable unionization happen under its thumb in the last several years, you know, Every employer wants to, you know, I'm all for unions, just not here. You know, this is a unique industry, a unique relationship that we have. And would you really want to bring a union into that? Yeah. Do you really want another, a third party to come between you and us, your pals and friends, your father figures? Lou, do you have a better theory than I do on this? By that I mean like an actual one that is reasoned out. To what part? On why companies do this kind of special pleading. Because mine is not very well reasoned, to be clear. (laughs) I, I mean, to take a shot at it, like, it's because... The employer will always have more power in the arrangement. We've we've covered this extensively, that when you put a single worker up against, let's just call them the one HR person. That HR person has the research. They know the ins and outs. They know the salaries of everybody around them. The information load is always going to be in favor of the employer. And the employer must keep that balance, that complete lack of balance um, in their favor in order to better exploit workers. And the only way to really balance that out is to have a union. And, and, you know, we've gone over this. So they're going to always use language like, we're your family. We are, you know, you don't want to come between us. You want to talk with us directly. We're going to be able to solve your problems directly because you can come to us. We want to open dialogue between employees and management and that kind of thing. And it's, it's, it's lies. Like it, it's all lies. They're not going to fix anything. They like the situation is set up so that they can win at all times. I don't know if that was any more coherent than what you were going to do, Noah, because I was on the spot there. No, that's fair. Uh, mine was going to be the very simple sentence that I understand why they would try to say that they're the only employer that doesn't need unions because this entire country is built on the phrase, I'm built different. 
it, it is an entire country built on special pleading. That yeah. is what the U.S. runs on. And it's no surprise that these companies would think that this rhetoric would work even when it is objectively false. Well, that it to go off your point further, it's partly also that all the employees think I'm built different too. Like I can outsmart the the employer. I I will have the upper hand because I I can see through them and I'm going to be crafty. It's like trying to go to an auto dealer and get a, a better deal on the car. It's not going to happen, my friend. You're you're going to have to pay whatever garbage they're throwing at you. That's how it will work. You're going to have to get that true coat. <laughs> William, H. William H. Macy is going to make you get that true coat by crying. Speaking of automobiles, it's noted in this article that the UAW now represents about 25,000 graduate student workers across the country, which is a much larger number than I would have guessed. Article also notes that about 156 colleges and universities have graduate student work unions now. That's what you call a good start. Yep. Hold on. Wasn't the UAW strike, didn't that cover, so they... The, the workers that were on strike, uh, the bargaining units, that covered like 150,000 workers, right? Somewhere in that range. I, I probably would have said 120 if I had to pull a number on the spot. But So like something, something like one in six, one in seven UAW members now as a grad student? Yeah, that, that would be how that math shakes out. That's incredible. Really remarkable to think about. Yeah, props to them for for realizing the good they could do here. Just to give some concrete terms as to you know the sorts of conditions that they're unionizing for. You know what what is so intolerable about the deal they're currently getting? Uh, this article notes how you know effectively they're paid about thirty thousand dollars a year by the University of Vermont for their work, but they also have to give a $1,000 fee in lieu of tuition, um, which one of the students demands is to eliminate that fee as part of a union contract. And they are set at, in theory, supposed to do 20 hours of study and 20 hours of work in a week, but that work often goes over 20 hours and as and they don't get paid if they go over there's no overtime pay there's you know the stipend is the stipend the stipend is stipend and i don't remember i don't remember if this was reversed or not but i do remember distinctly that uh one of the changes trump made to the tax code was that he made that entire stipend that grad students paid taxable because it was like part of their tuition money that they were going to do. So they were the tuition re- or like the free tuition that they're given plus the stipend was like their tax balance. So for some of these universities that charge like $60,000 a year, that was going to be like $90,000 worth of taxable income that they were going to have. So they were going to get buried by taxes. I don't remember where that happened or not. But once again, try telling the IRS that you don't work for them or don't work at the university. Like, see how far that gets you. They dropped that provision in reconciliation. Is now the time to bring up uh, Jimbo Fisher? What a yes. name. 
Yes, yes, it is in fact probably the most aptly named man. I mean, unless he was he an actual fisher, but like, well, he was a he was a fisher of Matten. <laughs> that's a different guy, Noah. That's a different guy. <laughs> I think you'll find, and Jimbo Fisher would agree with me that we are all called to be fishers of men if we believe in that religion. Who is Jimbo Fisher? Jimbo Fisher is a lot of our audience not familiar with Jimbo Fisher. I refuse to believe that that's true because I've been told that any red-blooded American, especially a male red-blooded American, and I know that some of our listeners are male. Who is Jimbo Fisher? Just help me out. Has to watch college sports. I don't know what we're talking about. As of today, he is the highest paid employee of the state of texas which is very interesting because he is also as of today no longer the head football coach at texas a&m i should also point out that i was under a misconception here when i when i was going to talk about this he is getting a so he made 45 million as the coach his buyout which is 76 million dollars he is getting paid 76 million dollars to stop coaching football is coming from a private donor so at least texas taxpayers will not have to foot the bill for that notably texans don't pay taxes well they don't pay income taxes right correct they pay lots of property taxes and lots of sales taxes but that's yeah so they have the money to pay him seventy-six million dollars to stop to go take his uh, talents, seventy-two point air quotes around there. Uh, Before elsewhere. being a highly paid employee of the state of Texas, uh, Jimbo had been a highly paid employee of the state of Florida. He coached at Florida State. Oh, great! What a what a wonderful program. He had a lot of success from. at Florida State that was not replicated at Texas A and M, and that's why he's now being fired up. We bring this up not to comment on the state of Texas A&M football, I assume. But well, I mean, it is very funny when Texas A&M is bad at things. I think Noah's point in bringing this all up is that like, these schools have the resources available to them. They have like incredible endowments and incredible private donors, boosters as they are called in the world of sports who are willing to spend money in the name of the university, provided that it goes towards the head football coach or at some schools, the head basketball coach. Yeah. Boosters because they prop up babies. That's very good. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) My point in bringing it up is that I know that it is. I know that it is the corniest take imaginable in 2023 to say that universities should maybe focus on education. But we are at a point where for years, as somebody who has to teach teenagers, which is why I'm not a big fan of them, despite being the senior teen correspondent here, who watches them go off to college some of whom go for things like scholarships and so on. When I complain about college sports to people, when I've talked about things like those fake classes at UNC that were supposed to, you know, just be 
rubber stamp classes for student athletes, which still exist at dozens of universities around the country. There's plenty of reports for that. What I always hear back is, well, you can't think about it in terms of the guys who are then going to get million-dollar deals in the NBA or NFL. You can't think about it in terms of the guys who are going to get NIL deals in college now. You also get that. You have to think in terms of the kid who's getting a scholarship so he can get his degree. And for a while, I kind of accepted that. I'm like, okay, fair enough. I suppose there is a world in which the current athletic arrangement at universities does benefit you if you're some kid from Waterloo, Iowa, who is trying to get your, I don't know, culinary arts or or whatever degree uh, out of out of a university, and you also happen to be really good at football or basketball, fair enough. But it's not me who's making that impossible anymore. It's not me who doesn't believe in that anymore. It's the universities. Because everything that they are that they have been doing in terms of college athletics, not just the NCAA, which is obviously a bunch of hell demons, but also the conferences in realigning in ways that are geographically absurd. Yes. Just for context for listeners who might not have followed uh, the college realignment stuff, historically, college sports have been divided into conferences, which are more or less geographical. The Southeastern Conference, all those schools are in the Southeast. The Big Ten covered the Midwest, Pac-10 out on the West Coast. And in recent years, as the rush to grab a just endless river of television money for football has escalated. Colleges have fled from conference to conference. Conferences have picked up new schools, dropped old schools. And we're now in a situation where starting next year, Michigan and the University of Washington will occupy the same conference. UCLA in Los Angeles will be in the same conference as Rutgers in New Jersey. And this, in the context of college football, which plays once a week, is maybe justifiable, maybe, but all of the other sports, which we are told are the reason why, you know, all that football money goes into helping the quote non revenue sports. Like, if you're now playing for Maryland's volleyball team and you have to play, you know, a 30 game season in your fall semester or your spring semester, you're going to be spending Wednesday nights on a plane to the West coast for a game strictly to prop up the football TV revenue. It's really making a farce out of the idea that these are students first and athletes second. Exactly. And, and that's without including the fact that all of these athletes are going through what is basically a professional level of conditioning. They're not just, it's not just that they play the games. If they showed up on Saturday or Sunday and played the game and then went home, that'd be one thing. But they have to undertake the entire strength and conditioning program that they are basically going to have to do if they make it to the major league in their sport. They are going to have to do a ton of prep work. They have to do film work. They have to coach up. They have to do practices. So the majority of their week is being taken up with this before we account for jet lag and so on. And suddenly, if you're, you know, my my invented student here who just wants to get their degree, that's looking a lot less likely. 
And sure, and you're on a scholarship, and you're not counting on getting NIL money or NFL money or NBA money or maybe in some cases MLB money. So that really puts you behind the eight ball in terms of what you're there to do at the university. And a lot of these, I will note, are public schools. They're supposed to be there for the kids that can't afford to go to an Ivy, for the kids that can't afford to go to like a really top level school. Not that they're not great schools in their own right, but they're supposed to be more accessible for everybody. They're supposed to be there because the state has a public duty to educate its citizens, and they are not completing that mission. And the more we allow college sports to be this huge monster, the less they get to complete that mission. Yeah, I think that's all well put. The segments run a bit longer than I expected, but we'll take a break here. When we come back, we're going to expand the scope of this episode from the college level down to the high school level. We'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Still hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. In our first segment today, we talked a lot about um, how colleges are, you know, trying to get their graduate students to not unionize, more or less, um, and how they're more broadly just you know, profiting off of everything they can while trying to pay people as unless they're college football coaches, as little as possible. In this segment, we're going to shift the scope a bit from the college level to the high school level. Noah, this was uh, your brainchild. Uh, what did you have in mind for this segment? Well, let me start with a really open question for the two of you. What was your busiest experience of high school? Like, your high school lets out. What practices are you doing? Are you going to a job? When are you getting home? How late are you doing homework? And assuming any kind of like basic social reproduction stuff, when are you getting to bed? Yeah, so I'm the foreigner here because I went to school out of state. I went to uh, school in Texas, which is a different country, as we all know. And how do you know you're from Texas? Because they tell you. Uh, So yeah, my senior year in high school, I was doing, all right, context here. Texas education used to be very, very strictly regulated, especially public schools. And you had like conferences based on how big your school was. So you could really only do competitions against other schools of of the same size and every facet of education could be made competitive in some way. Um, so I did uh, marching band. I did solo and ensemble for, for band, um, 
which had seasons and, and everything. So I was heavily involved with that. I did competitive academics and I also did like five APs at a time in my senior year. I did ended up doing six APs for the entire year, but I only five at a time. So it was really intense. And that that kind it was just a really competitive atmosphere where I went to school. So there was a push to do as many APs as possible and do as many extracurriculars as possible, which I'm sure is, is still the case. But I also feel like I might have worked a lot more than those kids did because I, you know, got to school at 7.30 in the morning because that's when school started. I didn't leave till after five. I did homework until about 1 a.m. most of the time. Rinse and repeat. Because it was it was a lot, especially senior year when you're doing calculus and AP history and all of the other ones that are really intensive in, as far as homework. So it was a lot and it was really stressful time, but I don't I don't think I would have done it any differently. So I don't know. I'll acknowledge off the top that I think my experience is sort of an outlier among like the kids who were along a similar track as me, if that makes sense. And that like, I took a lot of AP classes, um, you know, but I never felt that competitive pressure to really maximize my grades, to maximize my extracurriculars, to, you know, do all these things that even at the time we were told we were supposed to, in order to look good for colleges academics was something that came naturally to me. So like even homework was something that I often, you know, didn't feel really compelled to do. The only extracurricular on my agenda is that I was on the trivia team. And, you know, for the most part, that was one day a week. And like the longest night we ever had from that is if once a year when we took the bus to Honeyoy Falls and had to come back for a trivia meet I, I guess is the term I was very good at trivia for the record that's the one thing I was competitive about but <clears throat> my point being that I did not have the late nights the um, the feeling of being overwhelmed or crushed by it all uh, that I know a lot of people surrounding me certainly did so I'm a bit of an outlier in that regard and I'll, I'll share mine. I'm somewhere in between the two of you because um, especially towards my junior and senior year, I was taking AP classes. I did not, like Ryan, I did not consider them especially heavy, but I also wasn't taking AP Calc or A-Push. I did take, like, like, well, first of all, we didn't offer A-Push when I had the opportunity to take it. And a lot of my classes were taught very traditionally. It was very much like you lecture, you take notes, you take quizzes, that kind of thing. It was the stuff that I was good at. But towards towards my junior and senior year, I was doing a ton of extracurriculars because I didn't have a sport and community service was starting to become a thing in college admissions and I didn't have any of that either. So I maximized what activities can I do in this sort of thing. And what that added up to was basically school would let out and I usually would spend the next couple hours catching up on homework or hanging out with friends. And then I would be in practices pretty much until 
easily seven to nine, somewhere in there. Get home, eat a late dinner, and uh, usually go to bed at that point, try to finish up any other stuff in the morning. And there's a reason that I bring this up, not just to, you know, share and, and share alike, but as somebody who now is seeing this from the other side, right? Somebody who, in fact, by the way, coached a trivia team for several years and was actually quite good at it as well. Had an undefeated season a while back. Let's go. But um, we... Every year I have taught, we have been basically yelled at by administrators, by consultants, by sometimes by athletic coaches, by parents, and certainly by students for the amount of stuff we expect them to do outside of school, for the homework and the projects and so on. And when you're a teacher, burn notice voice, when you're a teacher, you have to cover a certain amount of curriculum within a year. One of the best ways of doing this is to, sadly, in in terms of like material coverage, sometimes it makes sense, and I'm saying purely in terms of materials coverage, sometimes it makes sense to assign homework. Sometimes it makes sense to ask kids to kind of like, hey, get ahead on this, or uh, here's something that we can't really cover super deeply in class, but I think you should have a chance to talk about it and maybe discuss it. So let's do some prep work outside of the classroom, and then you'll bring it in and we'll talk and that kind of thing. And we've gotten scolded for that. The The rule that we had when I started was that kids were taking seven classes where I work, and it was they should have no more than two total hours of homework a night. Now now they take more classes than seven, and it's now it's 10 minutes per subject per night. And depending on when you're going to see them next, that can mean different things. And I was fine with kind of trying to reduce the homework load because I know how busy my students are. And then this year I found out some really disturbing stuff. So my students came back the other day and we were drawing and, and just kind of talking about whatever. And one of them came out with, my practice last night started at 9.30. That's a sport practice starting at 9.30. Six and a half hours after the school day ends. For many of them, they can't really go home during those six and a half hours because they don't have a way to get back to the practice field after that. Some of them have practices that end at 9.30, but started like hours before. Some of them are on teams that are requiring them to practice and or play six days a week. And we're getting scolded for how much we're asking them to do outside of the classroom. For reference, they're attending a school, not a gym that happens to also have classes. Which, again, I realize is kind of an unpopular take because we live in a country that has one civic religion and it's sports. It's not Christianity. It's sports. That's what we actually care about. The flyovers are not happening over churches. They're happening at football games. Getting to the point where a bunch of teenagers are telling you that they wish they had more time away from their sports practices so that they could do more homework or get other things with their life done, it's, it's kind of a brain-breaking experience as an educator. Because you expect them to be bored with school. You expect them 
to hate the things that you're going to ask them to do. Because on some level, yeah, sometimes they kind of suck. You try your best, but sometimes they're not going to see the point of what you're assigning them. And <laughs> it was just wild to see them be like, I I wish I had time to do other things. Like, they're just, this this sport is asking too much of me. Yeah, it's, um, I think there might be some people listening to this wondering where the punching out angle comes in from all of this. And I, I think it's that all of this trickles down from the idea that you need to get into college in order to have one of the quote unquote good jobs in order to avoid the drudgery that uh, people with only a high school degree will be subjected to from the age of 18 through the age of 65. You need to have a degree so you, you can get above that. And in order to get a degree, you need to be like the best high school student that has ever existed. You need to get into super Harvard. And you know, if you don't, you're a failure at the age of 18. Yeah. I, I, you that's a good point Ryan it's that the the pressures that kids are put under as far as like their future I don't think are one reasonable as far as their expectation like you really can't tell an 18 year old kid that you know the school you get into when you are 18 will determine the entire course of your future one it's not as true as that sounds because like, you know, we three here, like with the exception of Noah, like, I, I mean, even Noah, like you, you didn't go into teaching thinking you were going to do teaching forever. And you probably won't. Um, Ryan, you went to school for journalism. I went to school for, for stuff that's completely unrelated to my current job. Like it, it does not have a lot of bearing necessarily on, on your future. But the expectations that these kids are, 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 that is put upon these kids is not reasonable. And furthermore, it's very skewed because we've discussed at length how the sports aspect is not going to happen for them. Like the, the vast majority of high school students are not going to be professional athletes. And yet from high school on, they're even told that they need to be athletes first and students second. And I've also said before, that, like the point of an education is to be educated. It's really not to, you know, determine your future career path. Like there should be learning for learning's sake and, and joy in that. Uh, and there's no way you can have that under what Noah described. Like not at all. I, I want to thank both of you for phrasing these points, some of which I had thought of and would never have been able to phrase as concisely, and some of which I legitimately had not thought of. Because sometimes it is it is very hard to, from you know your little perch in the classroom, um, sort of think about the wider situation that they're facing. And it's interesting. So, Lou, you you brought up the thing about sort of sports within schools. And I've said before on this show that the model going forward should be like what Latin American countries do, where it's, you know, sports academies are a thing. There's there's youth academies, and that's a separate deal. You work with them if that's something you're interested in. It's like if you take music lessons outside of school, you know, 
you're interested in this thing, you think you can do really well at it. Well, fine, you do that on your own time. You don't do that on you 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 your parents uh, arrange that with a program. Well, that has exploded in popularity in the last couple of years, certainly since the pandemic. I don't know all of what that's about. But travel teams have suddenly become a way bigger deal in my student population than they used to be, which is weird because my school is also better at athletics than they used to be. I don't understand that at all. And that is its own problem now, where I have increasing numbers of students who are just out every other week for a couple days at a time. Now, granted, it's a season, so, you know, they're not going to be, that's not going to last the whole year, but I'm told by parents of of travel athletes that I know that at least it used to mostly just be on the weekends and it used to be smaller leagues and now they're doing their version of the conference realignment thing where some of my kids have to travel you know eight hours into Pennsylvania on a Friday to play Friday Saturday maybe even Sunday and have to come back Sunday night so their entire weekend is shot to hell because any part that they're not you know playing hockey uh, well Hockey is the most common one, but hockey or baseball or soccer or whatever, they're not going to want to do homework. They're not going to want to catch up on school. They're, they're going to be spending time with friends like they should be doing and having fun and enjoying traveling. And so there comes a point at which there is no expectation that there is any kind of education here. And obviously, as somebody who is, I didn't go to school for teaching. I went into teaching for a variety of reasons, many of which were not good reasons, but eventually I got good enough at it that I was willing to stick with it. I am passionate about my subject area. I think I communicate that passion well. It sucks to watch it bounce off of kids, not because they're definitely not interested, but because they don't have the capacity. And not, not like in a mental way, they don't have the bandwidth to handle it because they have so much other stuff going on in their lives. And actually, Lou, you made a point about this because we, we talked about this punching out angle. We talked about the fact that in so many States there's, there's rollbacks of child labor laws and so on. And we should be clear that when we talk about, you know, kids who are exposed to kind of the, the vagaries of travel athletics or whatever, you made a point uh, off air that I think is, is worth making about, the differences here yeah i mean there are very vast oceans of difference in the experience of school from somebody who has to work during school and somebody who is struggling in school because they have to play sports like they there is no overlap in the two um you know the kid who has to go run a meat grinder overnight is not also spending eight hours on whatever sport field they have chosen or has been chosen for them in some cases. Like the the amount of privilege that is in having this discussion about the amount of sports that kids play in school highlights how unequal it, it is for almost everyone else who doesn't who doesn't have that experience. And to tie it back to our first segment, some of those kids are playing sports and playing that hard because they're desperate to get those scholarships 
because they want to get that NIL money. They want to get that, that they want to get their shot at the major leagues to, you know, that there are, there is a real, it is a real way that some mostly men have escaped poverty, have been able to create generational wealth. And our country gives you really only like three or four ways of doing that. And athletics really is the one that is least likely to leave you soulless. We don't have a lot of time left in this episode. Before we go, I'm going to give the two of you a choice as to which experience we want to have these last few minutes. Option one is a article from the Brookings Institute with the headline, Worrying Declines in Teen Employment. Excuse me? Option two from U.S. News and World Report, The Rise of High School Internships. Oh my god! (laughs) They're both so bad! How is this not the same article? (laughs) What's interesting is that they do seem to describe almost opposite trends in, yeah. in a way. This Brookings Institute article is from 2015 and notes how in the year 2000, 56% of Americans aged 16 to 19 had a job, and that number had declined to 39% by 2014. That's a figure that I think mirrors something we've discussed in the past on Punching Out maybe in our child labor episodes, but how like Subway was having trouble finding good high school workers. Yeah. Well, notably too, we should also remember that 2015 millennials were getting out of college or like their master's programs and not able to find full-time work. Like 2015, I was not fully employed. I definitely didn't have a, a, yeah, you I was working, working a job time. that in yeah. a past decade a high schooler would have worked. exactly. So that article seems to be forgetting how we broke the entire economy in two thousand eight and left millennials with nothing much to do as far as uh, foundations of life kind of thing. You know, thanks, Brookings. It is worrying. It is worrying. I agree. It was not a fun time. Oh my gosh! Well, yeah, to worry. Because if if the main problem you're having with the economy is we don't employ enough teenagers, we're fixing that problem. We're employing more teenagers, (laughs) and thanks to governors like Sarah Huckabee Sanders, we're going to employ the right kind of teenagers, i.e. the ones whose parents don't contribute to politicians. That is correct. But I, I think this also speaks to the idea that, you know, Lou, you touched on this, that, like, if you're from a certain class background, you're spending your high school now in extracurricular activities, in all of these AP classes, doing all this homework, you know, practicing an instrument or a sport. And, you know, you simply don't have time to be working because you have so much else on your plate in the name of appealing to a college. And so it's, really a continuation of what we've been talking about this whole segment. Yeah. There's some kids are going to have to work. Some kids are going to broaden their horizons so that they can pad a college resume. 
um, whether or not they want to or not. Like that, the class divide has never been more stark. I think on that note, we'll have to end this episode. Uh, We've run out of time for this week. I'm Ryan. I'm Lou. I was Noah. And this is Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.